0: slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Frances Penn, and in this episode, I'm talking to Jessica Muddett about Myanmar, sometimes known as Burma. We discuss its complicated history and how that shapes the country today, as well as the beautiful places to visit if it opens up again. We also talk about attitudes to travel ways to stay safe as a solo female traveller, and our experiences as expats in terms of culture shock, both in going to a very different culture like Myanmar or the Middle East, but also how both of us felt when moving to Australia, and how reverse culture shock can be difficult too. I loved talking to Jessica, so I hope you find the interview interesting today. Jessica Muddit is an Australian freelance journalist and travel writer. Her latest book is Our Home in Myanmar, Four Years in Yangon. So, welcome, Jessica.
1: Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, I'm excited to talk to you about this. So, let's start with if people don't know, where is Myanmar and how did you come to live there?
1: So Myanmar is sandwiched between the superpowers of China and India. It's a large country and it's got a lot of neighbours. It's all. It also neighbours Thailand, Bangladesh, where I was living previously, and Laos. Um, and it is, there are certainly tensions in the region. Um, and India and China sort of caught Myanmar in different ways, which makes the geopolitical region very interesting. There's always announcement and then there's layers of meaning underneath these formal announcements, especially when Myanmar was moving forward and opening up to the world. I came to live there. I'd always been fascinated with Myanmar. It had just captured my imagination, you know, with Aung San Suu Kyi having been under house arrest um, for 15 years by the time I got there. Uh, And I tried to go as a tourist, but it had been too difficult because there were all these rules about Flying in and flying out at the same place was going to be quite costly. So when I did my long overland backpacking trip, I ended up missing out on Myanmar. But then I was in Bangladesh from 2009 to 12, and I had a mutual friend who owned the Myanmar Times. So he was actually in prison at the time. And when he came out of prison, I contacted him and said, "Um, would you mind if I came over for a trial? And he said, sure. Sure. And that was, I arrived in July 2012.
0: I was just looking at the map there. So Yangon is near the coast. I guess that's another sort of thing is what is the country like in terms of the landscape? Because that often shapes a country, doesn't it?
1: It does. And Myanmar is incredibly diverse. So in in the northernmost parts in Kachin State, there's snow-capped mountains. There's like spotted leopards and things like that. And then right down in the south, so below Yangon, um, is an archipelago where there's sea gypsies who can stay underwater for like two minutes. And it's so untouched. It's the same latitude as Thailand's Phuket, but completely untouched. Like people very, very rarely go there and you can go in very costly sort of sailing boats for a couple of days. I didn't do that. Um, Yangon is so that faces the Bay of Bengal And so it's a port city, but unfortunately, one of the errors, the many errors of the military was to completely erase visibility of the water for most of the city. So all you can (laughs) see is cargo being loaded and offloaded, which is a real shame. People every now and again would say, couldn't we have a promenade or something? Um, But also the dictator, Tan Shui, he actually moved the capital. So Yangon is the de facto capital, the cultural capital and the financial capital. But the paranoid dictator became so fearful that Yangon would be invaded, I don't know, perhaps by China or India, that he built, in secret, built a capital on a swamp inland. And then one day just said, okay, the capital's moved, everybody moved, everybody moved. But even the embassies haven't moved there because it's completely devoid of, of, you know, any kind of, it's an artificial city. So people aren't exactly rolling up. To go and live there. So it's, it's a beautiful country. It's really lush. It's gosh, it's so hot. <laughs> and the monsoon is like nothing I have ever encountered. Like I would go to bed and the rain would be pounding down on the roof and I'd wake up in the morning and it would still be pounding down like this incredible... <laughs> incredible you know you couldn't even see individual droplets of rain it's just amazing and lots of wildlife so snakes and crocodiles and beautiful birds and you know beautiful lush tropical flowers just growing naturally and stuff on the side of the road it's quite beautiful yes that
0: kind of tropical paradise with um dictator situation
1: (laughs) which which is interesting so um paradise yeah.
0: yeah, which is, I mean, some people might have heard the, the name Burma as well. So what are some of these aspects of its complicated history? Because actually, we met uh, someone who said they were Burmese on a walking trip. And I didn't get into that conversation. But it does seem like Burma and, and Burmese is still used, even though the country is now known as Myanmar. So c- can you maybe talk about the complicated history?
1: it is complicated and there's no real right answer because both alternatives are problematic. So Burma is a colonial name and it's, it, it is a corruption of the majority ethnic group Burma. So a lot of people say, well, it's not representative and it's a colonial name. However, a paranoid dictator changed the name of the country overnight. So there's a bit of a pattern <laughs> in how decisions are made in a dictatorship and said, now the name of the country is Myanmar. However, every Burmese people had called their country Myanmar whenever they were speaking in the Myanmar language because it's too complex to go into, but that is the Myanmar name. So for the people, it wasn't a big difference. However, Western nations, critical of the military, refused to call the country Myanmar because they said it was, you know, totally undemocratic and why are we going to, you know, do it just because you tell us to. So it is really complicated and you can sort of test the temperature of the relationship by what name the US is calling Myanmar. So when Myanmar was making fantastic reforms and Obama came and visited twice, he used um, the word Myanmar. But then when he was in the company of Aung San Suu Kyi, who's a staunch Burmist, he called <laughs> he called the country Burma. So Hillary Clinton, when she visited, did not call the country either Myanmar or Burma. She called it the country in all her public speeches. <laughs> that's, that's so political. <laughs> totally prevaricating there. It is, it's super political. And then again, the people of Myanmar are unaware that it's such a political hot potato in the West. So they don't really mind what people call the country. You have like older generations, they prefer Burma and Rangoon instead of Yangon, you know, all those colonial names. But most young people say Myanmar and it's Myanmar language Myanmar country Myanmar people. so you often hear Myanmarese but that's not correct. In my book I chose to call the country Myanmar but the people Burmese and the language Burmese because it's quite awkward I think to, to be referring to Myanmar people Myanmar language throughout the book but that officially that's not correct. it should have been Myanmar people Myanmar language
0: so interesting. And like you mentioned, the older generations um, still preferring the colonialist words. And that, that seems, um, you know, to be common across some other countries as well, where I've heard that, like I was interviewing uh, someone about India, and many of the names are still used, the older names are still used. Mm. But in terms of the, I mean, you mentioned, obviously, the, the colonialist influences, is, is there still architecture left over from that period? What are those places like?
1: Oh, it's extraordinary. Yangon is is so it's got these crumbling colonial relic buildings, many of which are, you know, serving still as the immigration department. Um, they're mostly government departments. And I read on the back of an architectural book about Myanmar that Yangon is like an open-air museum. So because nothing that because the economy has stalled for half a century under dictatorship. Um, there was no building. So neither were they torn down or, you know, rebuilt. So whereas in, in um, say, Vietnam, where a lot of those French colonial buildings were replaced by sort of modern looking apartment buildings, that has not happened in Yangon. So you can rent them, you can live in them, these incredibly beautiful, but gosh, so dodgy you. <laughs> you really take I know people that you know you're not allowed to own property in in Myanmar if you're a foreigner but I know some people who just fell in love and bought it in someone else's name and would then spend so much money restoring these incredible buildings and there's a couple of bars as well that they've got Manchester steel beams and things and it's just extraordinary and because of the climate the paint peeled a long time ago so it's sort of this grimy um there's moss growing out of it. You know, they're dripping everywhere. The, the the windows are cracked. There's some beautiful photography books. And there's even, I went to the Pagoo Club. So George Orwell, um, who famously wrote Burmese Days, He, that book is about a fictionalised town, but it's based on his real experiences in then Burma. And I went to the Pagu Club, which is, it's unsafe. It's been completely abandoned, but it's just haunting these spiral staircases that are like creaking and half broken. And it's just amazing. So a lot of people fall in love with the architecture of Yangon and there is a blue plaque movement that Mm. started up just about five years ago to get these places protected and listed because developers do come in and, and the land is, you know, a good piece of land in a good location and they want to tear down these incredible things. So I don't know what's going to happen with the coup since February, if the buildings will be protected. I dare to say nothing. I dare to say that nothing will happen at all, probably.
0: It's so interesting, isn't it? Because I I love to hear about these ruined colonial places that just sound, it sounds so romantic. And in a way, it's very weird that that seems so beautiful. It's weird that we find beauty in the ruins of these, I guess, British (laughs) buildings. Mm. But in a way, I can see if they do preserve them, that that becomes quite a tourist destination so what what is the situation with tourists I mean obviously you were there as a journalist but you've mentioned some of the potential dangers is it somewhere that people can visit uh
1: right now no no because COVID is absolutely decimating the population and it, Myanmar very worryingly could become a super spread state so the COVID rates there are so high But if we're going to see a horrible variant come out of Delta, it could be in Myanmar. So for that reason alone, no. And then the second reason is the political situation. So there's bombs going off almost on a daily basis. People are disappearing. An American journalist got an 11-year sentence. He was just freed today. But if you were mistaken for a journalist, he was just trying to catch the plane out. It is a frightening situation. You could get shot. You could get caught in crossfire. I don't even know if they're allowing foreigners in. They they may be. There's a tiny fraction of the expat population. And it's it's tragic because Myanmar became Asia's new travel darling. It was the hottest new place. So beautiful. Um, the people are so wonderful. And it's, it's convenient. It's easy to access. It's like a 45-minute flight from Bangkok. So it was going great guns when I was there and the the reformist government was gradually allowing foreigners to go to more parts of the country that had previously been sealed off. And it was just, it was really exciting. There was a lot of sustainable tourism and you could go along the rivers and visit 2,000-year-old temples. And I, you know, the military are saying that they want to restart tourism in 2022. And there was an article on CNN this week about could you do responsible tourism in Myanmar? But I, I believe... The answer is no. And I think most Burmese people as well, from what I saw on Twitter, no, like the military shouldn't be rewarded for taking over a democratically elected government. So the best thing to do right now would be to boycott it. Sadly, I, with so much regret, I say that, but I think that's the correct position.
0: Mm, And of course, that might change over time. Well, hopefully it will change over time. And uh, it, it will re-emerge as things change. Things change, that's what we've learned, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah, they re- and they can change for the bad overnight and they can change for the good just, just as fast. So if democracy is restored, um, it's game on again and it'll be fantastic. There were so many fantastic ventures that have had to close because, as I said, the, any, any Burmese people who could leave have left and the same goes for the expat community.
0: So when you, I mean, obviously you said it was fine when you were there, but it still feels like you were traveling in places that many, um, I guess, Australians and British people, Americans might think twice about. I mean, you mentioned Bangladesh, which also has its own challenges. So what do you think when you consider any fear around travel or what do you say to people who might be worried not about traveling to Myanmar particularly, but just in general about tackling fear?
1: We, I'm not sure what is with me. I also backpacked around Iran for a month alone and I've been to Israel and Palestinian Palestinian territories. I just seem to, I, I trust, I'm very trusting of people and I think a country may have a bad rap, but that in no way is reflective of how decent the ordinary people are. And actually when I backpacked through Asia for a year and I finished up in Pakistan, Those people were the most wonderful, kindest, genuine, honest people that I came across, Um, perhaps because there wasn't a thriving tourism industry. Nothing was transactional. It all felt really spontaneous and genuine. But the occupational hazards is something that as I get older, I look back and think, wow, you you know, you're lucky you didn't break something. And I did have minor mishaps. But I mean, Myanmar is one of the, well, previously it was one of the safest countries in Asia, very, very low crime rate, very low violent crime as well. And so what you needed to be more careful of was not falling into a pothole on a footpath at night and because I know that happened to people, or becoming violently ill because there's some really nasty bacteria. and then if you do get ill, there's no medical care. So things can turn serious very quickly and there's rabies and malaria and typhoid diphtheria. Those kinds of things are, you know, genuine threats. Another thing that used to terrify me in Yangon was the number of people that stepped in puddles and were electrocuted by (laughs) power lines. Yeah. Shocking, shocking, you know, and it's monsoon season. You can't go around the puddle, like the entire road is flooded. So if you tread on a, a live wire, you know, people were dying and these preventable deaths and also road traffic deaths, because the dictator had changed the side of the road that people drive on overnight because he said the country was moving too far to the left. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's brilliant. Isn't it? It's insane. Like you couldn't make it up. So, well, I mean, no reasons were given, but that's one of the theories that has the most currency. However, most secondhand, well, all the cars are secondhand pretty much from Japan and they're not meant to be driven on that side of the road. So it's terribly dangerous. So those kinds of things. But I would go out, sit at an outdoor pub and have my bag slung over the back of the chair and I wouldn't give it a second thought. And I would not do that in Sydney. But that kind of crime is is almost unheard of. You'd have to be so unlucky. Um, Bangladesh had different hazards. It had all those occupational hazards, but it did have muggings. And towards the end, that did scare me. And that was one of the reasons why I thought I think three years is probably enough. You know, you start to feel you may be the cat with eight lives in the current city that you're living in, you know, Mm. (laughs) not to push your luck forever.
0: Well, it's interesting, though, because you did say there, I don't know what's with me. I backpacked in Iran and things like this. Have you thought about what is it that makes you different, that makes you, I mean, obviously you said you have experienced fear, but is there something in your background or just your personality that makes you able to to do these things, especially as a a solo female traveller?
1: Well... (laughs) Ironically, I grew up in the safest suburb of Australia. Statistically, by the level of crime, I don't think there's ever been a crime in my one traffic light town. So it's funny, but I was always restless and I always wanted to see the world. And as I started off, you know, I take it incrementally. I started in Cambodia and Laos and Vietnam. But then someone said, Oh, you're doing the banana pancake trail. You know this is where all the backpackers go. And I was like, right, I'm going to China. So (laughs) I went to China. Funnily enough, no one could speak English and I was so lost and so overwhelmed. But, But eventually I was like, I can do this. Okay, I'll do Nepal, I'll do India, I'll do Pakistan. And then after I arrived in the UK, I was like, oh, I'm quite close to Iran. I think I could do that. And I was a bit scared before I went, but it was incredible. And the people were completely amazing. I'm so curious about people and I have a very I'm very optimistic and I think the best of people like I'm actually gullible it's it's a hazard but it doesn't seem to stop me going to places once you start to get the feel of a region like South Asia I wanted to fill in the blanks so that was one reason why I went to Bangladesh because I'd been to almost all the other South Asian countries so it was familiar but also I was very curious to see what that was like as a nation
0: Yes, that combination between restlessness and curiosity, <laughs> I think that, yeah. dri- that does drive us as people who want to travel. So how is it, because obviously you're back, and it was interesting in the book, you said, because uh, obviously you're Australian, and you said when you returned, you suffered reverse culture shock. So what do you mean by that?
1: Oh, it was terrible. I'd been away for 10 years, and I'd spent seven of the 10 years in two of the world's poorest countries. But at the same time, while I'd lived in Myanmar, I was a cross-cultural consultant. So for all the expats having quite strong culture shock coming to Myanmar, I would have sessions with them to, to sort of ease them in. And then, so I knew that I might get reverse culture shock because it was something I coached other people on, but it hit me really badly, partly because the move was so abrupt and I didn't feel it was really my choice, but I had insomnia, I had nightmares... I I was depressed and like anxious. I would walk into supermarkets and just be overwhelmed by how much food there was and the prices were out of this world to me. And I'd just leave. I couldn't even decide what to buy. And I had to start from zero again. I got a job in a retail store. I like flipped my CV from when I was 14 (laughs) and was pushing the trolley down to the garbage section with all the covered boxes and Stuff like that. So it wasn't as though I sort of slid in and was being a journalist again. I didn't know what I was going to, who I was anymore. And people talking English, that spun me out because I'd be on public transport and I'd be able to hear every single word of the couple behind me. And I was like, I think I prefer not understanding Um, So it was just, and physically as well. So, you know, Sydney has these incredible blue cloud skies that seem to go on forever. I was used to thunder clouds and humidity, really thick humidity. The footpaths here, like I could have licked them, they were so clean and everyone's shoes were so perfect and everyone just seemed so rich. And, And perspective is really different in a developed nation, In Myanmar, people are really stoic and they don't complain. They sort of get on with the most unfathomable difficulties. But in Australia, people, I don't know, people whinge. Do they? Yeah. Yeah, they 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 do. (laughs) I'm I'm now a whinger. You know, I think I've sort of melted back into, you know, my old ways. I mean, maybe I'm not quite the same. I like to think I do have perspective, but it's just, it's a real shock to the system because you don't know which way is up. You're like, well, what is the correct perspective? Because these two perspectives are wildly different. You know, what do I believe? You know? So, and then over time, like I did see a psychologist about it. She said I had a cultural adjustment disorder, (laughs) had a few sessions, started to sleep a bit better, started doing some journalism again, you know, just freelance bits and pieces. Then I started dreaming about sharks and crocodiles and all these like really Aussie, you know, iconic things. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm getting better. And I was glad as well, to have left some of the stresses of Myanmar, which was I had a very precarious existence. So did, you know, my husband from Bangladesh, and it, it does take its toll, you know, on your well being af- after some time. So there were, you know, pluses and minuses, I guess. And now I'm really happy. I'm really happy to be in Sydney. But gosh, I can't wait to be able to travel again when this pandemic's over.
0: I'm really, thank you for talking about that. It's so important to be able to recognise the good and bad in your culture and also where you fit and where you don't fit. I mean, I have a New Zealand passport. I lived in New Zealand for five years. I lived in Australia for five years and I have moved back to the UK after a decade. Mm. And I I now understand why I feel English and I don't feel Scottish, for example, and I don't feel Mm. Irish or Welsh (laughs) and I feel absolutely English. And there are good and bad things about that, but it was so. It's almost like by living living somewhere else, and obviously living in Australia for me was not like living in Myanmar for you. But I Mm. learned things, and I was like, you know what? I can't live here. I can't live in Australia. This is not my culture, Mm. even though many people would think it's quite similar. Um, It's strange, isn't it? That feeling.
1: Yeah. Well, actually, you. People, and I know this from my cross-cultural training, is that you can, in your situation, you can have a more difficult time because the expectations on you are so much higher to fit in. So Mm. you arrive and people don't even realise that you're not, you know, from, you were in Brisbane, I think.
0: Yeah, I was in Brisbane and I lived in Sydney and um, yeah, all over the place, really.
1: Well, Mm. people would just be like, well, you know, she's from Brisbane. And then when you don't understand, people sort of look at you aghast. And so you can have really interesting, you know, interactions as you probably did. So, and your expectations of yourself can also be, why am I struggling with this? You know, and then by the time you go, no, this is not for me. Like you've probably gone through quite a lot of that, those disjointed feelings, that fish out of water type feeling That's you know it can be uncomfortable, can't
0: it? Mm. Yeah, even just sometimes this, at this sort of it, it, there's little things like body language or ways that in England we have a lot of subtext when we'll say something and we mean something else. And mm-hmm. I think I just assumed in Australia that people would understand what I meant when I said something, but Aussies are very yeah. direct. You know, a lot more direct. Yes.
1: yes. Terribly direct, Yep. Yeah. So, it yeah, it can be really. And I would struggle, like, with I'd go to, like, I don't know, a fuel station or something, and the guy there would, like, chat to me, like, really chat to me about, you know, who knows what. And I'd be like, what are you doing? Like, i was be averting my eyes. I was used to, in, in Asia, in a more sort of crowded environment, you, you know, keep your eyes downcast. You don't strike up chit-chat with some man, you know. <laughs> I was like, I think I became a little bit more modest, which is pretty funny. So it was all the, and, you know, elevators as well, like Aussies will think the time is ripe to talk about dogs and cricket or whatever. And it took me a long time, you know, to be okay with that, let alone initiate it. So it is, it's really, sometimes the subtle differences are the ones that hit you the hardest, I think.
0: Absolutely. Now, it's interesting There you mentioned averting your eyes and being um, modest. And this is something I think is really important is as even as independent women uh, traveling, you know, as, as Western women, we still need to travel sensitively and respect other people's cultures. And what other things did you do when you traveled around in Asia that you wouldn't do in Australia?
1: Well, I mean, a head covering for example, in Bangladesh, not all the time, but there were, if I was out on the street and I was on a rickshaw, because I have red hair, well, it's dyed red, um, from behind, I would get so much attention because there's such a tiny expat community and there could be 70 um, young men like staring at me in, in a group which can be quite um, overwhelming so it was easier for me if I was traveling to work or something I'd just pop a headscarf on because at least from behind no one would think that I was from anywhere else and you cover your legs all the time the idea of wearing shorts my husband Sherpa he struggled to wear shorts in Myanmar and he wears shorts now in Australia but men don't wear shorts in South Asia So he was really uncomfortable with that. And we never had any public displays of affection um, because that is not acceptable. It's okay for two men to like cross the street holding hands or give each other like a brotherly hug or something, but not um, men and women. And the same in Myanmar, like you'll see couples like canoodling under parasols and things like that. It really is very it's a very modest place and because the fashions were changing when I was there um, there were some men who felt that women shouldn't show their ankles and there were some girls who were starting to wear like cut-off denim shorts so there was like the tension between parents and kids was it was like the 60s were kicking off in a way so it was really interesting to see that so those kinds of things but even like Australians are loud and we swear Um, not aggressively always, but people in Myanmar are very quiet. They have a, a sort of like this graceful reserve to them. And even facial expressions in a way, you have to read people a little bit more closely. Like people are often smiling, but the smile can have all different meanings. So there's all these kinds of things that I think you pick up on when you, you know, live abroad. And I remember like in India, I was in India for six months And when I um, got to Goa, the touristy part, and there were all these girls in bikinis, I was offended by that. I was like, put your clothes on. What are you doing? You know, you can very quickly become used to what, you know, your day-to-day life is like, don't you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's very
0: much that way. I mean, even though I I think British people compared to Australians, I mean, we we don't take our clothes off like the Aussies.
1: (laughs) We we really take our clothes off, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. But I just want to come back on, you mentioned men holding hands. Just for people listening, if they don't know, you're not implying that they are gay. That's actually what men do in a lot of cultures, right, in Asia, also in the Middle East. Men holding hands is a friendship thing, not a a homosexual thing.
1: No, no, because homosexuality is sadly illegal, Um, you know, in strict Muslim countries of which Bangladesh is one really quite terrible things happen to homosexual men the holding hands is really friendship the way it's funny it's it, it's I didn't see it as much between women but men really very commonly but it's I, the way the way I think of it is brotherly it's that sort of just that physical affection and I had a couple of I had a, an Australian male friend come and I <laughs> I said to him like if my friend holds your hand, like don't be shocked. Just hold <laughs> his hand back. <laughs> so, and Simon, he thought that was really cool, actually, and it did happen. So, because especially people are like when they're warming up to you, it's the way we might like rub your shoulder or something affectionately. Mm. It's, um, I think it's really sweet. I I really liked that.
0: I like it too, but I remember in when I I also worked on the West Bank of Israel, Palestine, and and I I remember being quite shocked about the the friendship between men, the physical physicalness between men which, that just wasn't between men and women, even as you say, it's all about mm. modesty. And, but it, these little cultural things that we are, are just so different, but are part of normal life. I do want to ask you about the religious side, because when I was looking at pictures of Myanmar, there are some um, incredible temples. So could you talk a bit about the re- religious side and, and the, any temples you visited that were incredible?
1: Mm. Well, Yangon has the Shwedagon Pagoda, which is in terms of a landmark for a city, it just knocks all the others out of the park. For me, like it's this enormous 2000 year old gold, gold leaf temple that has relics of the Buddha. I think it has Buddha's tooth in it or something. Buddhist pilgrims come from all over the world to go to this temple. And it's so alive, like every day it is bustling with people coming it changes color throughout the day so at, you know at dawn it's incredibly dramatic and there'll be monks going around single file in their saffron robes offering arms and that kind of thing and then at sunset people will light candles and incense and ring bells and it's and you know families go there it really is a destination of itself you see people like families like sitting down and it's absolutely enormous and so wherever you are in Yangon, you can see it. And then at night, like if you're out having a drink, you know, at a beautiful rooftop bar and you can see this glittering gold sort of bell-shaped temple, it's just like it's magical. And then in, and, and there are so many temples across Myanmar. They're so common. They're as common as a playground would be in suburban Sydney. Um, and they they look quite similar. They follow like a very similar architectural um, design. But then you also have Hindu temples and you have Chinese temples. There's some beautiful mosques as well. And they're all very old buildings. Um, There's a synagogue as well. And then if you go to Bagan, which is um, in the very hot, um, dry inland, there are temples that are at least 2000 years old. And they're spread across the most enormous area. And you can go and you could spend, like you could spend weeks looking at these temples. So Sherpa and I got electric bicycles. You can take like an oxen cart or a horse and cart or something. And we just looked at these extraordinary temples that really, you know, I mean, in terms of um, material for your books, Joe, like mm. you'd be beside yourself, and there's no one else around. It's just like you and a bat in this temple. And then you go inside, and there's these enormous Buddhas. Like I don't even how did they even get them in? It doesn't. No, it doesn't make sense. You know, um, they're just like as tall as two buses type golden Buddhas staring down at you. And again, Pagan is still an active place of worship. There's like much lower population there, but, you know, there are people in there praying. So it's very much, this is a tradition that's gone on for however many thousand years, people aren't even really sure. So it's pretty magical and it's without, I mean, Angkor Wat in Cambodia is absolutely stunning. But there's so much development around that and there's a real industry. So you kind of, you never get the temples to yourself or feel like, you know, you can really have the peace of and really take it all in in an undisturbed way. But Bagan is is something entirely. And if tourism resumes to Myanmar, I would just say to anyone listening, get yourself there. You can take a hot air balloon over the plains mm. and the mists come up in the afternoon. And it's just, it's very, very stunning because it's like a savannah. So the temples kind of come up out of that. It's very, very beautiful.
0: Again, I, I just love these, these places and the pictures I was looking at. I, I, as you say, I was like, oh, I really must go there.
1: <laughs> so tempting. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. Oh,
0: fantastic. Right. Well, we're almost out of time. Uh, as this is the Books and Travel Show, what are a few books that you recommend about Myanmar and or travel in general?
1: Okay, so there's some fantastic books on Myanmar. My favourite um, is Burmese Days by George Orwell because he's my favourite author in the world. And that takes you back to colonial Burma. So it will give you an incredible insight into really the really complicated and some of the nasty aspects of Um, society that have the divisions you know endure today and it's very powerfully written and then linked to George Orwell my second favorite is Finding George Orwell in Burma by Emma Larkin and she writes under a pseudonym and this book is now about 20 years old so she went very secretively on these very short trips and she was followed this was when tourism was not a thing in Myanmar and she spoke to people you know normal people and asked them about their lives And as she did that, she was retracing all the places that George Orwell lived, so because he was in um, Burma as a member of the imperial forces. So it's fascinating. My third favourite is a memoir called From the Land of Green Ghosts, and it's by Pascal Pascal Kutwe, and he's a member of the Padung tribe, and he lived in a village so remote that his village did not find out that man had gone to the moon or that Elvis had died until 1977. He ended up studying in Oxford. He's like a genius. But his story is just remarkable. And the, the women of his tribe, like his mothers, they wear um, gold rings around their necks to elongate their ribcage. But it looks as though they're called the giraffe women. Apparently it was so that tigers didn't bite them and kill them and drag them away. But it's just, it, it's sort of mystical. It's almost hard to believe that it's true, this memoir. It's so beautifully written as well. My fourth and final recommendation is The Hidden History of Burma by Tant U. Um, His father was the General Secretary of the UN and, like, oversaw the Cuban Missile Crisis and... The author's insights into Myanmar are from that really high level. And he goes way, way back to ancient history. And like he takes you from right from the beginning and then leads you all the way through. Like it's quite a dense book. But if what you want is the important facts about Myanmar and insights from someone who's straddling both both cultures, that's an excellent book. But there are so many books that I could name that I love about Myanmar because it's such a complicated country that it's just... A lot of the books are really sad and they're written by former political prisoners, but they're so powerful and so inspiring that, um, you know, I never put a book. I could never, I always finished every book that I started on Myanmar, even if it was hard going. So, there's, yeah, there's some great stuff out there.
0: Mm, fantastic. So where can people find you and all your books
1: online? Well, I only have one book. I have Our Home in Myanmar, but I'm working to correct that as we speak. Um, So Our Home in Myanmar is on, it's on all the the retailers. And I have a website, which is jessicamudder.com. And that's got links to the the retailers as well. So that's where you'll find me and all the usual, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Jessica Muddett is my handle on all of those.
0: Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Jessica. That was great.
1: Thank you so much. I love talking to you.
0: Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page and if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpencom forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.